0: The problem with pornography is not that it shows too much of the person, but it shows far too little.
1: You know, the first few times going into confession, you know, I'm thinking to myself, this terrifies me, (laughs) but it is the best thing I ever did for myself and for my soul. Jesus
2: dropped a grace bomb on you too.
3: This is a big episode, y'all, and it's definitely not for kids, so use your discretion. Hopefully you know that in 2015, the USCCB as a body put out a statement about pornography called Creating Me a Clean Heart. It's long, and there's a lot in it, but they also made pamphlets for different groups like married couples, parents, people who are getting over addiction, etc. So please check those out at the show notes. This is Made for Love a Catholic podcast about real people living out the call to love. I'm your host, Sarah Perla. Pornography. If you've been living under a rock, I'll just let you know that pornography is a big problem in our society. A lot of you listeners already know that, because it's impacted your life directly or indirectly. But some of you may be in denial whether that pornography is wrong at all, or that your personal use of it is a problem. Others of you feel trapped. You know that it's wrong, you hate that you do it, you confess it at church, but you think that it's hopeless. You've tried to stop and you can't. You're ashamed. No matter which category you fall into, this episode is for you. One of the biggest things that I think needs to be said is that often children come across porn by accident. They aren't seeking it out, or if they are, they don't even really know why.
0: But I was exposed to porn, I think it was about the first grade. I have a brother who's about 10 years older, and we shared a room together. And I remember being that nosy little brother that was going through his stuff. And I found underneath the bed a deck of playing cards, and it was not any normal deck of playing cards, right? It was pornographic. And so I remember seeing this as a young kid, I didn't know what my brain, I just, I knew instinctively that people were not meant to be looked at this way. And so I threw the cards down and I just yelled, mom, mom, and I ratted my brother out, right? He was not happy with me.
1: Well, okay, so there's what I heard about it first and then there was what I saw at first. When my brother and I hit our teens when I was like 12 and my brother was like 13, my dad got us together and he was like, boys. I need to tell you about something you're not supposed to ever watch. I don't know if that was a good plan or not, because a year later or something, curiosity kicks in and I looked it up. Like I think I have kind of an addictive personality, so like as soon as I hit it once, you know, it was I was hooked. So the frequency was lower at first, but then eventually it became almost a daily habit for a really long time.
4: I actually had a sexual experience when I was about four years old, and that was kind of my first introduction to it. Obviously I was really young, didn't understand any of it, but that led to looking at catalogs. Um, Started probably about seven or eight years old. Didn't know why, but I was intrigued by that and was looking at like underwear advertisements, that kind of stuff. And then I grew up in a, a rural town Uh, It was really small. I grew up on a farm, and we had a grain elevator. And when I was 14, uh, I was at the grain elevator by myself, and they had a Playboy calendar hanging up in one of their buildings, and I found a chance to go look through it, and that was my first introduction to full pornography then.
3: So they barely had a chance, these little boys who came across something their brains didn't know what to do with. And sometimes they had the example of a family member who was a porn user.
0: When I was in high school, my grandfather, you know, he was—he uh, was, was a man's man, kind of guy I looked up to. He was—he was a boxer in you know World War II. He was on an aircraft carrier. He was actually the captain of his local fire department. He was one of the reasons I got into you know being a firefighter. And so, old people, you know, they used us younger people. This was back when I was in high school as their tech support. So I remember he got a new DVD player, and he called me and said, hey, can you come over and help me set up my DVD player? I said, sure, Grandpa. Oh, geez, this is going to take forever. So I went over there, set up his DVD player, plugged it in, took three seconds, and then the training started. I said, Grandpa, here's how you turn it on. Here's the on button. And he said, okay, well, show me how to put a DVD in. I said, fine, Grandpa, do you have a DVD? And the DVD that he handed me, it was porn. Now, I don't know about you, but there's nothing there's that trains you for a moment in that life when your grandfather hands you pornography. So I didn't know what to do. I said, Grandpa, give me something else. And he goes, no, put this one in. I put it in. I, put, I said, okay, there you go, Grandpa. And I got out of there as soon as I could. And I remember on the drive home, just thinking to myself, this is the person that I looked up to. But it was kind of shattered.
3: Or friends who thought that this was great fun and the ticket to popularity.
0: When I was
4: in high school... I went to a small school, and we had a basketball team, boys and girls basketball team, and we only had one gym to practice at. So we took turns doing early and late practice. And when the boys had late practice, there was a group of us that during that week we would go over to one of the guys' house. His parents weren't there. And he had a VHS player and we watched pornographic videos before we went to practice and that was a pretty regular occurrence.
3: Sometimes these kids realized it was bad early on.
1: I was only like 13 or 14 but I could see that well I knew it was a sin and I knew I couldn't stop but since I hadn't been entering any relationships so I didn't really see how much it was affecting me.
3: Now, I believe in free will, people. I am not saying that at any point, DJ, Kevin, or Jeff couldn't have chosen differently. But today, we're just talking about what did happen. DJ and Jeff were both introduced to pornography even before the internet. So just imagine how much the temptation was compounded once that entered the scene.
0: You know, this is where they say that uh, pornography, internet pornography is so attractive and prolific now in societies because of what they have deemed as the triple-A engine, kind of like a stool with three separate legs. It's affordable, most of it's free, it's accessible, and it's anonymous.
3: If you're skeptical about the claim that porn is addictive, go to the show notes for resources or, well, just keep listening. You
0: know, there was one quote from a person that said that pornography is one of the largest social experiments in human history. And I think that we're going to look back at this time in history when pornography became so prolific and embraced by the culture. It's a really dark time because it's just clouded our ability to see the human person.
3: And it's not even just the quote-unquote hardcore stuff. Again, if you haven't noticed, even shows and movies that are considered mainstream are really sexually explicit now.
0: Not even to mention the things that are happening in mainstream media, or those shows that are on Netflix and um, HBO and those kind of things that essentially have pornography just inserted into them, and then we can lie to ourselves and say, this is just uh, regular entertainment, nor the fact that, no, it's it's pornography. Pornography affects not only the the soul and the, the character, but also the chemistry of the brain.
3: Porn actually has physical effects on the brain of the person who is looking at it or watching it.
0: They've actually done studies where it, the area of the brain that is required for using a tool, like a rake or a broom, the area of the brain lights up when certain people that have viewed pornography look at a human person. They end up using them.
3: That's partly the reason that just going to confession or praying about it is not going to be effective. Your brain has been wired to respond in certain ways to certain stimuli. you got to rewire that thing. And that is work.
0: And so a lot of the... Uh, effects that we're having our culture are, used to be the question of, you know, what does a good relationship look like? And now we have no idea what a, what a relationship even is. That people have become unable to be aroused by their partner, but they can be aroused by the images on the screen. And so they've labeled that as porn-induced erectile dysfunction. And so there's a whole group of non-religious people that are realizing the harmful effects of pornography when it comes to relationships, and even when it comes to the ability to have sexual intercourse.
3: Using porn makes you feel better, somehow, though only momentarily. A person doesn't use porn because he or she is super happy about his or her life, y'all.
0: There's a trigger, and these triggers could be um, anything from, seeing a pornographic magazine or email that comes into your mailbox, or it could be anything that wants to trigger the person to view pornography. And then there's an emotion that happens afterwards, and immediately afterwards, an instant excitement or interest or curiosity, then thought comes in of, you know, I wonder, I wonder what I could see, you know, or I could look at pornography, or I like what I'm feeling, why not go view pornography? And all this happens in a matter of seconds. And once this happens, the next thing that happens is the chemical released. So the body's flooded with chemicals that prepares the body for what it would see.
3: DJ is getting this from Father Sean Kilcalwe, who is an expert at helping people break free from pornography. He recommends to stop the sequence before the chemical reaction.
0: And there's actually been studies done. There was a study back in 2001. These Canadian researchers proved that when this group of men was exposed to erotic images, if they were instructed to deliberately not think about it, not engage into it. And so they were actually able to control their brain's response to the pornography and not be completely overcome by the chemicals.
3: Okay, so let's turn back to how porn has affected particular people. Hi, my name is Krista
5: Burridge. I'm 23 years old. I'm married to my wonderful husband, Kevin Burridge.
1: Hello, I'm Kevin Burridge.
5: We've been married two and a half months, and we are from Cincinnati, Ohio.
3: Pornography actually came up on their third date.
5: Yeah, so on our third date, we had gotten dinner. I think we'd gotten sushi, and we went on this really nice walk. It was summertime, so we were on a bike path. So we walked on the bike path for probably an hour, an hour and a half, and we're just talking, and I felt really comfortable, and I was just so excited about Kevin because he was just so cute. He was into chemistry. He was really intelligent. He told me that he had a desire to increase his faith. So I was just
3: like, oh my gosh, he's checking all the boxes. I really like this guy. This is really exciting. Krista hadn't been so excited about a guy in a long time. She had been online dating for a while, and she just really connected with Kevin. You know, that magical feeling when you think there's a possibility that this other person really gets to you.
5: We finished our walk, and we were sitting on this bench that was outside my apartment complex, and it had this cute little fountain near it. It was nighttime, and the stars were shining, and this fountain was glistening in the moonlight. Like, it was a very beautiful, like, romantic moment. Kevin had his arm around me, and it was just, like, really special.
3: Perfect summer evening, a romantic walk, a fountain, looking into each other's eyes. I know. Why don't we talk about that thing that no one wants to talk about? Do You view pornography, and he took
5: probably a three-second pause, and then he just looks at me and goes, yeah, and it just felt like the biggest mic drop of my entire life, like this beautifully romantic, perfect moment, just, like, shattered, and I just instantly felt like my heart shut off, and I was like, oh no, and I was like, I need to leave. And so I ended the date very promptly after that, and I just kind of went up to my room and just kept thinking, oh no, I don't know if I can date this guy anymore.
3: I didn't expect that. Okay, people, Krista is 21 years old at this moment. She's young. But this was not the first time that a guy she dated was also a regular porn user, And she knew that this would not work for her.
1: I wasn't that surprised that she asked, actually. And thinking about Catholic, knowing that it was a sin, you know, I I had played out conversations like this in my head before. And Krista mentioned, like, a three-second pause or something. And that that was not me considering whether or not I was lying, okay? I was trying to figure out what the best way to say it would be. I don't really know (laughs) what fruitfulness would come out of that since yes is, you know, was it wasn't gonna wasn't gonna get anywhere. Krista deserved to know the truth. The way I said it was yes, but I know it's bad and like I don't wanna be doing it, but I don't know how to stop. Or I can't stop. And so obviously it's a hard thing to admit. But things that are in the dark should be brought to the light.
3: So Kevin and Krista stopped dating. She basically said he had to get clean before she'd consider it.
1: And I accepted that challenge, <laughs> but I also didn't know what to do.
3: Kevin didn't have the tools to overcome his addiction to pornography. He went to confession, sometimes multiple times a week, but that didn't do it.
1: I was tempted with, like, settling for someone who who would tolerate it, but, you know, the entire time I still have Krista on my mind, feeling really discouraged.
3: Kevin and Krista both tried to move on and date other people, etc. But Kevin also started to make progress by implementing practical changes in his life.
1: I lived in a room with four other guys, but we didn't know each other. So it was kind of like living alone, except that we all share a kitchen. But one of the things that helped the absolute most was just leaving my bedroom door open when I was home. It's just such a huge difference. The guy who lived in the room adjacent, the bedroom adjacent to mine, he was home at a completely unpredictable schedule. So... It was good to have that uncertainty because it was like, you know, at any given moment, some guy could just walk in on me watching porn. That was probably one of the best deterrents was just to be transparent.
3: He recognized that prayer helps you to make these kinds of choices.
1: The prayer is the way to give you the grace to get out of the situation. As deeply addicted as I was, any situation I was ever in, no amount of prayer could help me unless I chose to remove myself from the tempting situation. There were times that I was tempted with masturbation and I, like, if I was in the shower, I was tempted with masturbation and I was just like, I'm just going to hop out of the shower. I'm not done, but like, whatever.
3: He had to come to terms with his weakness.
1: The more I struggled with it, the more I was just like, I clearly have no willpower. So the key is to just put yourself in a situation where your level of willpower doesn't matter. And that's being somewhere where you obviously can't just open the porn and masturbate.
3: They are aware that sin leaves scars, and this is just the beginning.
1: Most people,
4: not all, but most people have to hit some level of rock bottom before they'll go get help.
3: Kevin's rock bottom was that the girl he really liked wouldn't date him if he was using porn. That is a blessedly high rock bottom. Jeff's rock bottom was lower. It was when his wife of 20-some years and the mother of his eight children said that she should kick him out of the house.
4: So for me, rock bottom was when I thought Annette was leaving me, and I started to look for apartments. That's when I finally made a commitment to, to change my behavior and
3: do something to
4: deal with this.
3: How did it get this far?
4: I'm an engineer. And um, 17 years ago, I got caught at work looking at pornography on the Internet, and uh, it actually happened twice. And the second time, I was disappointed both times, but the second time I was given a a day off without pay. And so I had to come home and explain to my wife why I wasn't going to be going to work, the next day and why my paycheck was going to be short.
3: Jeff's wife, Annette, believed him when he said that this was a one-time slip. But things were not good in the Cohen household. Jeff and Annette's marriage was on the rocks. The
2: emotional and verbal abuse increasingly got worse. And then the sexual abuse came in. And that went on for 14 years
3: to the point that I couldn't take it anymore. Annette went to confession at her local parish in Lincoln, Nebraska, and for the first time ever, told another human being that pornography was an issue in her marriage. She happened to be talking to Father Sean Kilcali, the priest I mentioned before, who knows how to handle this.
2: And I just basically went in and I'm like, I hate my husband. I can't look at him. He's just so ugly to me. I go, the sound of his voice is like nails on a chalkboard, and heaven forbid, he should touch me. I'm
3: done. Father Kilcawley listened and validated Annette's feelings of betrayal, anger, and hurt. It was Father Kilcawley who suggested that when Jeff was caught watching pornography at work, it may have been best to kick him out. Fourteen years ago when you found out you should have kicked him out,
2: I left that appointment and I called Jeff and he said something that upset me. And so I said, Father Kilcawley said I should have kicked you out. With that remark, my husband did two things. He started looking for apartments and he called father. And he's like, you told my wife to kick me out? Father goes, well, not exactly. Jeff said, I know I've screwed this up and I will do whatever it takes to fix it. Well, my husband said that was the first time he ever truly meant it. He had to change his behavior. It was on October 4th. It was in the middle of the night. I couldn't sleep, which was pretty normal for me having trouble sleeping, and my husband reached out and put his hand on my shoulder, and he's like, what's the matter? Well, instead of me giving one of my snarky answers, I was like, I can't sleep. And he's like, well, are you too hot? Are you too cold? And it was the first time in a long time that my husband started being kind to me, and that kindness continued.
4: Yeah, I remember that vividly. When that happened, that was a really difficult thing to do because I feared getting rejected. I mean, we had fought so much and we had had such a rocky, rough relationship over so many years that I'm not sure what prompted me, if it was the Holy Spirit or grace, but something prompted me to just start asking her about it because she was just really restless I debated for a long time whether to touch her or not because we have a king-size bed and when we were going to bed we were in the same bed but we were as far apart from each other as we could possibly get so if either one of us would have moved a little bit we would have fallen out of bed but that's how close to the edge we were so I finally just kind of gathered up my courage and said said to myself, I need to do this, so I did. And she didn't give me a snarky remark, she didn't give me a rejection, she just accepted it. For me, that was huge, because it was some acceptance that I was looking for that we hadn't been able to get to before. It was a huge step, even though it seems really small.
3: Annette met with father again and said, there's something weird happening. Jeff is being kind to me. What do I do? Father said he wanted her to go on a walk with her husband, to hold his hand, and not to talk about bills. Those walks became a huge part of our recovery. Annette finally
2: asked Jeff, When was the first time, you know, you were exposed. And he told me about the incident when he was four years old and then the green elevator. And I started talking about this being an addiction. And my husband goes, I don't like that term. And I go, well, right now, that is one of the things saving you. Because if this isn't an addiction, then what is
3: it? Then what does that make you? And he's like, understood. Jeff started getting help. Father Kilkawi told him about a three-pronged approach to recovery, counseling, a support group, and spiritual direction. Counseling got off to a rocky start because Jeff spent his whole first session complaining about Annette.
4: He said, you know, all of that was about everything that she's doing wrong. Not any of that was about you. So I spent the next two years in counseling kind of learning how to get past that, basically a narcissistic behavior.
3: Jeff really didn't want to go to a support group.
4: And when he asked me why, I said, well, I was afraid that I was going to run into somebody there that I knew. And he said, well, if they're there, then that just means they have the same problem that you do, so you don't have to worry about that. I got there, and I think there were about six guys in the room, six or eight guys in the room. And the support group has become a huge tool for me to use. Prior to getting in recovery, I'd go to mass, and I'd look around at the other men in in church and wonder why I had a problem that I couldn't deal with. I couldn't stop looking at pornography, and all of these other guys didn't have this problem. Everybody else dealt with it okay, but I couldn't get a handle on it. And I didn't understand why I was kind of the oddball that I couldn't get it under control. Well, after I started joining the group, it gave me a group of men that made it clear that, First of all, I wasn't alone and it also became very clear that there are many men that struggle with this and the shame and the guilt of dealing with it are really what keeps people from getting help with it. So everybody just sits in silence and suffers and they're afraid to go get help.
3: These men have become a really important part of Jeff's life.
4: After three years, I still go to the support group. We have a text thread that gets used regularly. If a guy is having a temptation or a struggle, he can reach out to the group and just say, I'm struggling, will somebody pray for me? There's always at least two or three responses. So it's a close group of men that can just speak honestly with each other.
3: And Annette expects Jeff to attend group every week. Unless it's physically impossible.
4: Our anniversary is in November, and I can't remember if it was the second or third
3: <laughs> the second? meeting that I
4: was supposed to go to. Second? I said, Well, it's our anniversary. I'm not going to go to group tonight. And, you know, at that point, we're married. We were celebrating our 26th anniversary. She said, We'll go out for a nice dinner, and then we'll come home. And then if you want to be married for another 26 years, you'll go to group tonight. And so on our anniversary, I left and I went to group.
3: This is just part of how Jeff has changed. A husband can stop looking at pornography, but if he doesn't change his behavior,
2: like Jeff talked about being a narcissist, changing that behavior, it really doesn't I mean, that's a step. But what helped us in our relationship is Jeff, like he said to me one time, I don't want a good marriage, I want an amazing marriage. And he goes, I want to heal. I wanna heal myself and I wanna heal our marriage. You have to want all of it. Some husbands can stop the pornography, but if they don't change the way that they treat their spouse, that's a huge problem. And where my husband, he actually changed his behavior before he stopped. You should never stay in an abusive situation And that even if that abuse is emotional or verbal abuse, it's still abuse. Sometimes you have to step out of that marriage that may be leaving the situation to get help with the goal that that will prompt him to go get help, because um, abuse is abuse, and nobody should have to put up with
3: that. And Annette has also joined a support group for wives of addicts. Father kind of got me to go to the women's one, the wives' one, I should say. At first,
2: I was reluctant, too, but after going and meeting these women, and making friends and being able to talk to another wife who was dealing with this was the biggest part of my recovery. I had been in counseling, but being able to talk one-on-one about what I was feeling or a trigger that I remember that Jeff used to do and be able to express those emotions without being judged was just huge. And these women have become good friends of ours, and we have become friends with these couples. And it's just been great because when you're with people that know everything and your most personal
3: things, you can just relax because you know that there's you're not hiding anything and you don't have to keep up a facade. Slowly, Jeff and Annette have told their children what happened. The change in their relationship was clear. At one point during dinner, one of their daughters said, what's going on? You guys haven't fought in a while.
4: I've disclosed my addiction to six of the eight And our kids range in age from 27 to 9.
3: The kids have all reacted differently, of course. And so much depends on how long they grew up with, well, really dysfunctional parents versus the calm and loving couple that Jeff and Annette are now.
4: And the other thing about disclosing with our kids, as we've talked to them and been honest with them, they've started to open up to us and disclose things to us. So they're more willing to be open with us about the problems that they're struggling with. The longer we go, the more open they are with us. And it just leads to a more trusting relationship between us as parents and children.
3: Okay. Now we're going to tackle a bunch of questions you might have. And I'm not always going to tell you whose voice you're hearing. You'll figure it out. Or just live in blissful ignorance. Here's a question. Can't you just pray more and use some willpower?
4: I say a rosary every day or I wear the miraculous medal. Well, that doesn't work for everybody. I wore a brown scapular all the
0: time. And all I did was increase my guilt. Utilize the power of the rosary, of course, of the sacraments, but also fasting. Fasting is just adding fuel to the fire. It just amps up our prayers. And specifically when it comes to fasting, offering up our sufferings. And some people that are trying to break away from pornography, it is suffering. Use that suffering. Use that suffering. Offer it up for yourself, also for those people in the images and the videos, the people that are in the porn industry.
6: I can remember very distinctly sitting at the kitchen table once and we had my former in-laws over and my then-husband was starting to tell them about the problems he was having – And my father-in-law more or less said, well, just pray the rosary more and go to confession, then you won't want to act and make those choices. And I was so hurt by that, so hurt by that, because while I believe in the power of prayer, addiction is a disease, and addiction affects every area of your life, and you need specialized help for this type of addiction. So I was really hurt by, you know, just like insensitive or aloof comments, similar or related to that what are
3: some tools that people find helpful?
0: Obviously having a solid accountability partner, somebody that you can talk to and identifying those triggers of what they are and then having a plan in place to divert the person's attention from going down that activation sequence of viewing pornography. And that's a tough thing for somebody to realize all those triggers, and all those things that are leading the person because some of the triggers are external things and some of them are even internal thoughts.
7: Covenant Eyes is one of those programs Reclaim sexual health is also another good source. this program I know it has a lot of training information that is based in science and the facts of what porn can do to the brain, kind of commenting on the uh some of the addictive properties, some of the actual chemicals going on in the uh what porn produces uh, in the head or one of the other boundaries for me is if something comes
4: up, I have a temptation or I get triggered, I have to text group that is one of the boundaries. And if I talk to Annette, that's always her first question is, did you text anybody? And I've had to say no, and then I have to explain to her why I didn't bother to text group that time. And then the next time, I made sure I texted group. There's all these tools out
7: there, but there's always a hesitation to use them. I believe Porn Kills Love is a uh, product of Fight the New Drug which is a great source for facts about the harmful effects of pornography. It's a completely uh, non-religious, non-legislative source, but it has a a great wealth of current information.
3: If you're in recovery, or if you think the addiction is gone, can't you just relax?
4: It's not uncommon for men when they, they'll have brief periods of sobriety. So to give you an idea, my sobriety date is a year ago, last February. So I'm approaching two years of sobriety. But I see, I've seen several times where when men, they get a little bit of help and things start going well, they'll have a brief period of really easy sobriety. And they won't act out. And it can be two, three, six months. And usually there will come a time when there's an unexpected temptation. And if you don't have some sort of a plan to deal with that, those can become really strong really fast. It can be an attack from the devil. Sometimes it's just something has triggered a reaction to a situation or a feeling from the past. And if there's not a plan to deal with that, then those temptations can be really really difficult to deal with and then there's a relapse. Not that a relapse is the end of the world,
2: and I would tell every wife out there, you need a plan regardless. And I talk to a lot of young wives, and one of the first things I do is like, what is your plan? What is your plan if he relapses? What is he doing for his recovery? We have one of the rules is no phones in the bathroom. Like, what is your, you know, How about it on on all your devices? Do you have your apps down? Just for safety reasons in general, but there always needs to be a plan and a set of boundaries.
0: I'm still feeling the effects of my pornography use. I've been clean and sober for over five years from pornography, and I can tell you that wow, the difference now in in the person that I am uh, as opposed to when I was stuck in that that habit of viewing pornography, I can honestly see the humanity of the person. St. John Paul II talked about uh, how Adam and Eve were able to view each other with all the peace of the interior gaze, where you recognize one another as a gift. And when I was viewing pornography, even after stopping viewing pornography, I was still dealing with that. I would almost look at a person and I would uh, immediately use them. It was almost like immediate. I would immediately use that person.
1: So there were very deep wounds, and those don't instantly go away after a month. There can still be porn-related struggles that precipitate from that, but, like, the wounds, they really do heal. It just takes a while. And if someone has watched porn but is now clean, and they say or do something offensive or whatever because of that, it doesn't need to be the end. If they have other redeeming qualities, you have to give them a chance because there are scars there, but they can't heal.
3: Porn is an issue for secular people or with, like, nominal Catholics. Not real Catholics, right?
4: I was at a retreat probably, I want to say, 20 years ago. It was an all-men's retreat, and we had one evening where it was just kind of a, it was just a discussion group, and it was, I think there were about 10 or 12 guys on the retreat, and we were all friends. And one of the guys made the comment that one of the things that he struggled with was pornography. And I was struggling with it at that time. My first reaction was, whoa, that took a lot of guts to admit that. I didn't speak up. I was scared to. And then everybody else in the room was just silent. It was almost as if the guy hadn't said anything. It was just ignored. I remember thinking at that time, I'm never going to tell anybody about this. I'll go to confession for it, but this is a secret. I'm not going to tell anybody about it. It's that shame and it's that guilt, and my guess is there were at least five other guys in the room besides me that were all thinking the exact same thing that I did.
2: I thought my husband was the only one doing this, and when Father said over half. The men sitting in the pews at church are dealing with this, Annette. And I'm like, oh, you know, he started telling me the statistics and stuff. And when we went to the Covenant Eyes talk, you know, and I started learning, my husband's not the only one. When I first found out, I thought, oh, my gosh, if any of our friends find out, they will just shun us. They won't want their kids playing with our kids. That was what I was afraid of.
7: I think just encouraging anybody out there who is addicted to it, seeing it so much, uh, having written about it so much, you do see how... Prevalent it is, and I think it's known more to be for men that it's more uh, addictive, but it's also been increasingly more popular with women, and um I think people really just don't understand how damaging it is to the person, to the mind. It can just affect relationships just by on um, very simple and natural levels that people who get in, involved with this are just more likely to isolate. You know, there's more. Uh, People who are less confident, you know there's even uh, been research of erectile dysfunction. I think people can lose heart or believe that it's all popular in the culture, so it's okay or even lose heart that they tried to quit and it's not it's not working
3: okay, but if you're dating someone, that's not really a polite question to ask now, is it? One thing I would say as a woman who's
6: walked through this experience is specifically speaking to women that we women, before we marry and seriously date men, we have to be very brave and courageous to ask very difficult questions related to things of a sexual nature in the sense of what is your pornography used? How many times in the last year have you watched it? What's your favorite kind in the last year? How many times have you masturbated? Do you find either of those behaviors to be problematic for you? Questions like that because I did not ask those questions before I got married. And looking back, I missed red flags, absolutely. But what I've learned from this experience is that we are living in such a broken, wounded sexual culture. We are so lost on what it means to be sexual beings as it relates to what it means to be a man and what it means to be a woman. And young girls who are growing up, the statistics of pornography, addiction, and sexual addiction are so high that we have to train our daughters and our nieces and our sisters how to ask these questions of men before they get married, but even if they're in college and dating
0: pornography is basically like rape school and unfortunately every every rapist is awarded a full scholarship online in our culture that's really concerned with with rape culture, and especially we've seen with the with the me too hashtag that's out there now. It's kind of baffling that we haven't focused our attention more on pornography.
5: I would say I do really think it's important to ask people you're talking to about it. I'm really glad I asked Kevin about it. If we had just broken up for some other reason, Kevin might be exactly the same as he was two years ago, but because I asked him, I was able to start the conversation. Like You don't know how you're going to influence someone else's life just by asking I just want to highlight God's grace. Like with God, all things are possible. Ask and you shall receive. You know, Kevin asked to be clean, asked for forgiveness, and God gave him that. And so I want other people to realize that anyone can receive God's grace and anyone can receive God's healing. That's not something off the table for average, everyday people. God can work in every single person's life and heal every single person.
3: This is just a U.S. problem.
7: So Nepal banned uh, more than 20,000 websites, and India banned uh, more than 800 major porn sites.
3: And in England, which, by the way, is my favorite country...
7: A committee in the House of Commons last month compared the dangers of pornography to the harms of cigarette smoking, uh, noting public health campaigns should be invested in to curb these, these harms.
3: And finally, what about kids? What do you tell them about pornography, and when?
4: And I've read books to my daughter. I've talked to my son about what pornography is, the kinds of things that it can do, the problems that it causes, and what to do and how to react to it.
0: Uh, You know, there's some polls out there that say that the average age of Internet pornography exposure now is between 8 and 11 years old. About 90% of teenage boys will see hardcore Internet pornography before they turn 18. It's a little bit lower for girls, about 6 out of 10. But, uh, you know, as somebody that's been going out there specifically in the classrooms and addressing this to, to seventh grade kids at their earliest, um, I can say that, you know, unfortunately, the stats are correct. And so when I talk to parents, I tell them we have to assume that our child is going to be exposed to this content in some manner. So it's no longer an option to just sit out. We have to address this, even though it's an awkward topic. It's just the time, the time that we're living in, the culture that we're living in, if we don't talk about this, they're going to get the wrong information from the culture. So when I talk to kids, and parents, if you're listening, please use this too. I just give them a three-step simple approach for when they're exposed to pornography. So step one, like if pornography shows up on a screen, the computer, the device, whatever it is, step one would be to turn it off, turn away. I even say don't try to click the X because there's something called mouse trapping that these porn companies use that makes another window pop up when you click the X on the screen. But there's certain things like tablets. We know how to turn those off without even looking at the screen. So step one would be turn away because seconds count when it comes to the chemical scarring that can occur and the brain changes when viewing pornography. So step one, turn away. Step two, what the researchers are saying uh, in the book, Good Pictures, Bad Pictures, is to verbally call it out verbally call it out say it out loud to label it as a bad picture we're Catholics and so this is an opportunity for us to pray and so I give the kids a Bible verse you can use you know, Matthew chapter 5 verse 8 blessed are the pure of heart for they shall see God or anything from Psalm 51 create in me a clean heart you verbally have to say it out loud which helps to protect the brain from going down that pathway and releasing those chemicals so step one a way step two verbally call it out it's great. When we are presented with these triggers, you know, these temptations from the devil, if we use them in, instead of them being big, heavy boulders that are dragging us down to hell. They become little light balloons that are dragging us up to heaven because those temptations become opportunities to pray. And the devil hates it when we use his temptations as opportunities to pray. And after a while, he'll leave you alone. So step one, turn away. Step two, verbally call it out. And then for the young people, step three, I tell them they must tell a trusted adult or a parent. And that's sometimes the most difficult step for them to take. And they have to be reassured by their parents that if they've been exposed to this stuff, they're not in trouble. I've got your back. You're not the villain in this situation. If it pops up on the screen, you are not in trouble. I love you. I'm so sorry that you have to deal with this.
3: Okay. Okay. There's a lot here, y'all, and I just can't cover everything. So if you're thinking, Sarah, you didn't talk about how women struggle with porn, too. Or what about initiatives like Exodus 90 or Beggar's Daughter? Then to you, I say, go to the show notes at the blog of marriageuniqueforareason.org. Because I am just one person, y'all. If you like what you've heard today, please support this project by sharing it with your friends, subscribing to Made for Love on iTunes, writing a review, or commenting on the show notes at marriageuniqueforareason.org. And be sure to follow us on Facebook and Twitter and all those things. This is essentially a one-woman production, so yours truly did everything, with the notable exception of the music, which was composed and produced by Michael Taylor.
7: Hello, this is Michael. Thanks for listening.
3: Thanks, everyone.